Welcome back to the Muzzle Blast Podcast, the official podcast of the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. This week we're talking to Daniel Howell. He runs the Folk Craft Revival Podcast. It's been interesting following everything that Daniel's been doing. He's out in Utah, and it's it's been really cool to see how different the traditional or folk crafts are between where I'm at east of the Mississippi and where he's at really far out west. We get into a conversation about how American history is different between here and there and how that changes and affects the traditional craft areas of both the east and the western United States. So we go down some rabbit holes and we, we talk quite a bit about how muzzleloading connects into that. If you're interested at all into working with your hands or making things, living traditionally, be sure to check out this episode. And at the end, be sure to check out the Folkcraft Revival podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow him on social media to make sure that you're seeing what he's doing and, and how he's sharing these things. I'm looking at his site now, and he's got a lot on traditional archery. He's getting interested in traditional foraging. So if, if you're into kind of the living history, living historically side of things, but also you've got a little interest in muzzleloaders, be sure to check out this show and, and check out his show as well. Thank you. Um, well, I grew up in a lot of small towns. Um, you know, we lived in Eastern Oregon for a while in a town of about 400. Uh, and then we moved to Utah uh, and we were in, you know, smaller town, central Utah, a couple thousand people. Um, grew up in a lot of small towns and, uh, we were always involved in a lot of, you know, growing your own food and whatnot. But then my dad had a couple of books that really got us uh, going on a lot of different things. Um, we had uh, Larry Dean Olson's Outdoor Survival Skills and Tom Brown Jr.'s uh, Wilderness Survival Skills, I think it's called. Okay, yeah. Um, so I, I started in the kind of the survival area, the wilderness survival and outdoor uh, skills, woodsmanship type things. Um, doing things like friction fire and canning buckskin and, uh, edible plants, uh, things like that. So oh, cool. that's kind of where I started. Um, I've always been fascinated with making things with my hands and whatnot. So, um, eventually I, you know, started reading other books and got into things like bow making. Um, the library had a copy of, um, let's see, I think it was the Bowyer's Craft by Jay Massey. Okay. And I read that one and then ended up ordering um, copies of the, the traditional Bowyer's Bible, the first couple books there that they had out at that point. They didn't have the later ones, but got into things like bow building, um, started making my own knives, um, you know, a bunch of things like that. And yeah, just steadily progressed. I've, I've always enjoyed reading, so I'm always finding random how-to books in the library and reading them and then trying to, to replicate what I'm reading about. Yeah. So, been a lot of fun that's awesome and th is this is this part of your day job then or, or do you work on work somewhere else um <clears throat> so i'm a woodworker okay, i awesome. uh, i did professional woodworking for a couple of years um with a with a larger wood shop we were mainly doing custom wood doors um sending them to some of the nicer areas uh up to a lot to jackson wyoming and park city okay so some really, really nice high-end custom doors. Did that for a couple of years, and then I started my own um, side business. That's what I've been doing for the last two years. I've been making custom uh, wood and antler rings 
Oh, cool. So, a lot of men's wedding bands. Yeah. That type of thing. I looked at wood, um, but I wasn't sure how long it was going to last. I got married in November and I was kind of yeah. nervous about, <laughs> you know, about it splitting and things. But <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, I haven't had any uh, issues with that so far. Um, yeah, I've like I said, I've been doing it for a couple of years and I have too many rings at this point because when I when I come up with a new idea or design or whatever, I make it in my size and try it out yeah. <laughs> before I make it for anyone else. So I've got a bunch of them, which might be, well, yeah, it's it's fun and I enjoy them. They're a lot lighter weight. I prefer the feel to metal and I really like the look. Yeah, I bet it's a lot more natural feeling. Yes and no. You end up putting a finish over it anyways. But oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, you. It doesn't have that like cold metal feel. Yeah. And they're a lot lighter weight. Um, yeah. They're a lot of fun, and I like making things that are pretty and detailed and whatever. So. Yeah, it's it's nice to get out and work with your hands. I was um, stitching up some sheaths for some knives that we make last night while we we're watching TV. You know, it's just kind of yeah. nice to, you know, I was, I was still working and I should have been kind of relaxing, I guess, but it was just nice to, at the end of the night, be able to sit down and look at those and say, you know, Hey, I made those. That's kind of why I, I have a hard time with jobs that don't, uh, I can't see the result of. Yeah. I, I really like working on something where I see a direct result of what I've been doing and I haven't just, I've been sitting on a computer or pushing paper all day. So I, I like seeing a product, something I created. I guess I'm, I'm just a creator. I like seeing what I created at the end of the day or end of the week or whatever. So. Yeah. You know, just a lot of our members are, are aging, um, they're kind of in their mid sixties and really concerned about young people getting into, you know, muzzleloading isn't your focus, you know, but a lot of what we do is traditional craft education and American yep. history education. And that, you know, you can't separate the history from the craftsman is how I look at things. Um, whether you're building bows or rings or pouches or guns, um, it's all connected. And so I just like to sit down and kind of talk. It's, it's really nice to be able to do this and, and sit down and talk with people about that kind of stuff. So if there's anything that you, you know, specifically want to talk about or want to bring up, you know, go ahead. You know, I, like I said, I try to take it pretty <laughs> casual. And feel free to take you down a rabbit hole, a side tangent somewhere. Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we interviewed, um, we were at a show this weekend, um, the Connor long rifle show here in Indiana. It's just, it's a small living history kind of trade fair deal, but we sat down with a couple event coordinators and, and, um, vendors there. And we went down some, some rabbit holes where I looked at the recording and it was like two hours long, but you know, it was, it was a lot of fun being able to sit down and talk with people about that. Cause at where we're at, we go to a lot of shows and, and meet with a lot of people, but it's really rare to be able to sit down and have a full, you know, two hour conversation with somebody. And, and this is a great yeah. excuse to sit down and do that. That's what I found with my podcast too. It's, uh, a, it's a great excuse to just reach out to people you've never met before and talk about something which you've never really been exposed to. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've loved that part is I've yeah been able to connect with a bunch of people that honestly, I would have never had an excuse to, to talk with otherwise. Um, and then, yeah, just the conversations you get and some of the information you learn. And I don't know, it's, it's just a ton of fun chatting with people. So um, completely understand there. And yeah, I, I don't know that I have many rabbit holes in mind, but I'm sure something will come up while we're chatting. So yeah. I, uh, I've always been kind of interested in muzzle loaders, um, but honestly, I've never had the, well, time and money, I suppose, right. uh, 
to get involved in another hobby. Yeah. So, <laughs> to me, listening to your podcast, I've, I've followed you guys on Instagram now for a little while. Uh, I don't spend much time on on social media, but I've always been fascinated with yeah the history, kind of like you're talking about. And I really enjoyed your guys' first episode. I have listened to to uh, your episodes, um, well, your podcast you. episodes. So I really enjoyed your first episode. Where you guys were talking about the history and the craft and uh, muzzle loading in general and some of the the past of the organization or whatever. Um, and yeah, I I think it would be fun to be involved with that. I just need to find the time and money to get involved in yet another hobby. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a million things pulling. You were, you were talking about just, a, a one of the fairs you were just at. Um, are there quite a few of these living history events that you go to? Are there quite a few of them back East? Yeah. So, and that's what I'm finding is as I continue, I mean, we're very active east of the Mississippi and we have quite a few of our charter clubs and field representatives west of the Mississippi. And, and we're looking at trying to get back west as an organization. But um, what I'm finding is, is we have a lot of living history and trade fair type events, whereas out west, they're more referred to as rendezvous, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for for out east here, I mean, when it... It really starts, you know, the the probably the first or second week of January after the holidays. Oh uh, wow! They start up, and you know, we have a lot of of our volunteers and board members, and a lot of the people that set up at our events are on the road. You know, thirty thirty five weekends out of the year, going to different events. So, I mean, um, the Connor Long Rifle Show is one of the first around this area for the year. There's one down in the very southern end of Indiana that starts the week before. And then there's pretty much one, uh, as the weather warms up, it's, you know, all of them are inside right now. But um, come probably March and April, they'll start being outside, you know, as, as, as things warm up. And then it just kind of starts to run. And, you know, if, if, you have the, if you have the gas money and the vehicle and the gear, you can be out just about, I think, every weekend until about mid-November. Oh, that's awesome. I may have to look into... Uh... Do you, do you guys have a list or anything like that on your website of events that go on over the year? Yeah, we've got a, an event calendar on our website that's set up with um, with our events and, you know, just general events that we found online hosted there with as much information as we can find on them. So they're linked with an address and the event website, the contact information for the people that host the event. Uh, and that's all in there on the calendar. And you can look at it kind of by calendar. You can look at it by state or by event type. So if you're looking for kind of a trade fair like this one was, you can search for that and find that. Hmm. I may have to look into that in the future. I, I would love to get back to some more things. And I think you're right. Um, muzzle loading out here, I don't think is as big, uh, mainly because we don't have the history as much as you guys do east of the Mississippi. Right. You guys get a lot into the kind of the mountain man and the fur trade out there. As a, you, yeah, you get the, the mountain man fur trade a little bit uh, of history out here. And yeah, you do have people uh, very interested in that. And I've read a number of like the old trapper journals and whatnot. That's always fascinated me. Um, so yeah, you get some muzzle loading type rifles that were used then, but really the westward expansion by that point, I mean, a lot of it post civil war, you start getting into like breech loading rifles and you get like lever action Winchesters and Colt revolvers. And yeah, it's not too fast. Like that. so, so that's much more of the, a part of our history out West than it is East. And you guys have more of a history with the muzzle loading and a couple centuries of 
of that type of thing back there. Yeah, that's the that's one of the big things around here. Pennsylvania is one of the largest active states for us. Just be in, in as you go east, you know, you get to the coast where things are a lot more built in. But you have that history of the French and Indian War and the uh, obviously the American Revolution, and then even up into 1812 for the War of 1812. I mean, we have several battleground state sites here in Indiana that we have, you know, we have evidence there have been digs, you know, we know that these battles came kind of pre-percussion, pre-1840 era, which is really yep. neat for us because we can go out to these sites and, and hold these real artifacts. Um, the Tippecanoe County Historical Association here in Indiana that, and has a whole battleground museum on the battleground with a battleground memorial of that. And they have artifacts that were dug up there, you know? And wow. so for us out here, I mean, it's uh, flintlocks are, are big for us. Uh, that's a lot more real. That's a lot more tangible history. That's kind of a, an abstract part of a history for us out here. Cause it's right. Cause wasn't you, you really guys got around there. at all. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, at the NMLRA, we do a lot of, I mean, for us, it's all muzzleloaders. So we focus, I mean, Anything that loads from the muzzle, you know, we're a big fan of. So if you're even like the wheel or match locks, you know, you're more than welcome to shoot those. Flint locks, percussion. Uh, we've recently expanded actually into a lot of black powder cartridge uh, because a lot okay. of our guys are really interested in the history side of things. And they get started in traditional muzzle loaders and then kind of advance through time a little bit up into the black powder cartridge or the sharps. And... Um, in, in late March, we're working with a group in Tennessee to host a, the Creedmoor 150. I believe kind of 1840s, 1860s, uh, with the Creedmoor rifles shooting out to 1,000 yards with muzzleloaders and breech loaders, which is kind of exciting. And so Pretty for, impressive. Yeah. And people don't... Th a lot of people assume that muzzleloaders are only good, you know, out to 100 yards, you know, off of a rest. But we have a lot of... A large chunk of our membership loves pushing that limit, and and I kind of call them race guns because they're it's a lot like a race car where you're constantly trying to push that limit. And there's a lot of people trying to push that limit with historic guns, you know, working on the loads and the charges and things, which which gets really interesting. So, I mean, people, everybody has the thing that they think of when they think of muzzleloaders. But if you whatever you like, I, I would argue there's a muzzleloader for you. Yeah, that's. It's one of those things that's kind of like knives. I mean, you can get a knife in any different style, any different material, uh, any different handle, you know, all sorts of different things. You can customize it and truly get whatever you want. So I imagine muzzle letters are kind of the same, but you have uh, actually probably more variety because you've had technological advances throughout the time period they were being used. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of variation. You know, if you're just looking for a, a, a hunting rifle, you know, it, you can stay pretty basic, but you get up into the kind of the competition race guns. It gets, it gets really interesting. Yeah. You are right with the uh, events out here being mainly called rendezvous though. I mean, uh, I went to the Jim Bridger rendezvous over in, in Wyoming quite mm -hmm. a bit when I was younger, my dad would take the family. Um, and we had a ton of fun out there, but, uh, I kind of quit going to the rendezvous cause I felt like, you know, when we were younger, you had a lot of people that were actually kind of living it. Uh, you still had some actual fur trappers that would come in and, yeah. um, a lot of people that were a lot more into the history and things. And then I felt like it kind of devolved into more of like a craft fair selling stuff. Um, you still have the furs and the, you know, black powder match, uh, 
you know, and things like that. And it, it just turned a lot more products being sold though, than it used to be when I was a kid. So I kind of moved away from going to those, but it's definitely, definitely a fascinating, fascinating event and fascinating things going on still. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, we're, we're seeing a lot of that. Um, it's, I don't know, a, a you know, a, a good way to describe it, but I think, um, what we talk about sometimes is there's a difference between living history with, and trying to replicate history accurately in an educational manner and then the history of living history. So for the NMLRA, we saw a huge boost in the 70s, you know, with the 200, 200th anniversary. Yeah. And the, I mean, looking at the photographs and things, at that time period, events even out east here were called rendezvous. Because it wasn't necessarily about the historic accuracy or that's just what we knew from the time period. And yeah. so now you're, you have the kind of a split in the community if you're living history or if you're living kind of living history history. You know, is, is the, the <laughs> kit and the gear that you have accurate or is it accurate to what you grew up with? You know, and, and we're not yeah. trying to police anything like that. Um, a lot of, you know, there are events that control that very strictly. And, and, and I think that's just kind of the growing pains of figuring out what we're all doing. Yeah. Just kind of interesting though, to see what's going on to watch it evolve. Yeah. Cause um, a big, a big area for events out here is the craft and the traditional, you know, working with your hands side of things. So a lot of our events will have massive school days where they try to bring in, elementary schools from, you know, two hours away to come see and interact with the living historians and with the craftspeople. And uh, they'll put on kind of a battle reenactment, you know, it's kind of entertainment on things to, to give them an idea of, of history outside of the textbook. Um, because now, and it's something that we see a lot at those events, is that kids don't really have a concept of somebody making something. You know, oh yeah, that's they order it, yeah. they see it in the store, and they don't see that that human connection to it. And even now, you know, even electronics and they're still put together by people. But even down to like a chair or a rolling pin, a spoon, a cup, a bag, um, they don't equate that human connection to it. And when they do see it, um, I think the troubling part for me is is that they see it as bad that that person has to work. And, and make something, which it's, you know, it's, I'm not trying to, you know, sit down and be a grandpa about it, you know, about the kids <laughs> these days, you know, but I think it, it's something that people that are yeah. interested in making stuff with their hands and interested in history and how things were done in the past. I think it's something to pay attention to. That definitely is. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it is kind of sad. Uh, yeah. If we're, we're going to try and avoid being grandpas here, but it is kind of sad um, how it's become so, mm, just, it's something you can't, or something they can't relate to. And, yeah, that's, um, I, that's a great way to put it. That something has to get made and someone spent, you know, six hours or whatever on this particular thing. And that's just something they can't relate to at all. And that is kind of sad because yeah, all products, well, everything, you know, whether it be the food you eat or yeah, the clothes you're wearing or whatever, it's someone put time into it. So, yeah, I love that. I love how you put that relating to it because it, it's not the child's fault. 
you know, they don't understand or they're not interested in it. They've never been exposed to anything like that. And it's not necessarily even the parents' fault. It's it's just a change in culture. And yeah. it's it, to, to keep all this stuff going, I mean, on our website, you know, the first thing that comes up is preserving history. And that's that's what it's about. It's making sure that we're cataloging and, and saving this information for when that kid you know, is 13 or 14 and starts developing their own interests and they start being interested in this kind of thing and, and exposing kids to living history and traditional craft and muzzle loading and working with your hands. You know, I think that's something that as humans, we're really connected to. And it's really important to share that as much as we can. And I think that's where, you know, the Folk Craft Revival podcast and the NMLRA and Muzzle Blasts and all the people that we both talk to, I think that's where it, it's it's another step in that outreach to make sure that this stuff is ready and the history is, is there for these children when they start developing those interests. That really is for me. It was a lot about, um, yeah, I want to help other people learn, but it's a lot about um, kind of preserving some of the old crafts. I mean, there's a lot of crafts that frankly, no one knows how to do anymore. Uh, you can find things in museums and people are like, Oh, well, this was in someone's barn somewhere and we have no idea what it does or how it works or what it was for. Right. We can um, just kind of guess on it. We can guess on it. And that's kind of sad because you're like, that's only 150 years old. Like, yeah, that's fairly modern machinery. Uh, yeah. Late 1800s. And we don't know what it was for. Uh, that's, that's forgetting pretty rapidly, but yeah. yeah, a lot of, a lot of my podcast too, that's, that's what I've enjoyed is talking with craftsmen and people who know how to do things. And I've, I've started out, uh, attempting to keep it more of like a how to, um, type podcast so people could really learn how something was done and the principles behind something. Yeah. But, uh, as I've progressed, I've realized that a lot of, <sighs> that's fun and I'm going to keep doing that, but there's a lot of interesting stories that people have to tell as to how they became a craftsman and some of their thoughts on, on, uh, working with your hands and developing a, a skill or a trade or a craft, whatever, whatever you want to, you want to call it. Um, there's a lot of interesting stories and thoughts that people have on, on how this develops and how it impacts them and the people around them and whatnot. So I've kind of, uh, not necessarily drifted away from being uh, more of a how-to based. Um, there's still that base in a lot of the episodes, but um, definitely, definitely explore a lot of the stories that people have as well. And I, I think those stories are are as important as the how-to because uh, the stories are how we relate to that person. You know, it's oh yeah, it's it's hard to look at what something somebody is doing or the craft that they're doing. And, you know, it could just be totally unrelatable, but if you sit down and talk with them and you hear that backstory of how they got into it and what they were like when they were younger, looking and, and seeking this knowledge, you can start to, you can find that relationship and then you can see the path that they took. And even if you're not taking that same path, you know, maybe it takes you down a road to connect with something else. I mean, uh, it humanizes it and brings it a little more into the present for you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have in the, in the traditional craft community that we see, you know, there are leather workers and there's kind of the, the staple, um, toolkit really for shooting a, a muzzleloader. And if, if it, you're shooting traditionally or modern, you know, it's, it's pretty much the same thing, but there's, you know, there's the muzzleloader itself. 
there's the powder container that you're using, and then there you usually have a box or a bag to carry you know supplies and tools that go with it. And then within that community, you have people making you know those tools in a million different sections. I mean, there are people that get down to specific counties with their muzzleloader that I'm building, you know, a Boone County or Lancaster County from this area, from this time period rifle. And I'm pairing it with this bag from, you know, this area in this time period. And then the, I mean, traditionally you're using a horn for, for your, to store your powder with your powder horn. And then you get into, you know, the same things with those, but then you can also get into replicating the personal history of an original horn. So the original powder horns were oftentimes kind of a personal history of who carried it. And they had information on there about them or their family or what they had lived through. And then, you know, you're getting into another section there where you can kind of go down that rabbit hole of where that person came from. And you can be really connected to that, which is yeah, really that's exciting. Fascinating. I never really think about history as being, well, yes, history is county specific, but uh, things like craft, I never think of them as being county specific. I think more regionally. So it's fascinating to hear that there really are differences from county to county in a lot of the things you guys work with. Because I would have looked at it and been like, yeah, I'm building something that was common in New England in or Massachusetts or something like that. I wouldn't have even thought to go county specific right at that point i would have just assumed that the differences were you know differences between craftsmen right and that's what's at least where we're at out east here is you know you're in a pre-industrial era for the united states so you still you had things that were produced in styles you know like the windsor chair is a windsor chair is a windsor chair I mean, and don't get me started on that. There's a lot of different areas within <laughs> within that, and you know that. But um, I think, especially as you get out west, I mean, everybody thinks of the Hawken rifles, and that that you started to have, you started to get into that industrial era for the United States, where you could produce things not in mass like we think of now, but it was a lot different than a gun builder in the hills of Tennessee, you know, making a couple guns a year. In their style. Or they're all different. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That that definitely changes things. I mean, even thinking, you know, crossing the plains and whatever, we think Conestoga wagons. Uh, before, yeah, before you had a couple large companies just building the same style wagon, I, I imagine there were hundreds of different wagon styles all over the place, depending on your needs. Yeah. And they were connected to those families and, you know, where they came from. And I, I imagine that the Nordic wagons you know, we're different than the European wagons, Yeah. you know, and you kind of get into the, you get into all that. And that, that, that's really interesting. <laughs> very, very fascinating. I'm always drawn into things like that and exploring the differences between uh, different crafts and the areas they come from and what their uses were. It's, it's fascinating to see how people will alter a craft or a trait or whatever based on uh, the specific circumstances or needs in their area. Yeah. So you've been, You've been out, is it Utah, is that correct? I'm in Utah right now, okay. yes. And where did you grow up then? You've been out, you've been west of the Mississippi your whole life. I've been west of the Mississippi my whole life. Um, well, living, uh, I've visited east, but yeah, yeah, living, I've lived west. I've lived in, uh, I was born in Montana. I've lived in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Oregon, 
And uh, as an adult, I lived in Alaska for a summer. So oh, wow. Um, yeah, we bounced around quite a bit. I've lived in a good portion of the, the Rocky Mountain states. Yeah. That's really neat. As I've like I I'm the exact opposite. I've lived out east and I've I've traveled out west. Um, but I th- I think what you said about the the differences in in the history is really neat because that that aligns with what we see online. And I think where you know a lot of times there's a dichotomy of of east and west when it comes to history and and history lovers because you you either you like one or the other typically. Yeah. Um, but they're they're all connected and and we talk a lot about in the association here that, you know, the history of muzzleloading is American history. I mean, they were, they were important to us, you know, in becoming a country and then continuing to be a country. And, and, and we really were formed by them. Yes. Yeah. And we joke that the, the long rifle is the first true American art form because we, we brought in influences from England and Germany, but then we made it fit what we were doing here. And then it just kind of expanded on that. And, and especially as you go West, you know, that, that shapes just firearms history and, and the history of everything, at least for this country, I think. I definitely agree. It's, it is interesting. I've never really thought about muzzle loading in those terms. Um, but you're right. It is more of an American history. Yes, Europe had firearms and everything. But if you really think about it, England was built on the backs of longbows, not firearms. Yeah. England was around for a long time before uh, firearms were developed. Things like Germany, Spain, things like that, they were developed or became countries long before firearms were developed. So it is kind of interesting how, yeah, uh, we are much more formed by and uh, had a much bigger role in our history than than it did on some of the European countries. Your, your show is focused and, and your life is focused around traditional craft. And you, you mentioned, you know, working and, and building nice doors. Um, but where is that where is that taking you now? I mean, do you have a, a personal workshop that you work out of? Are you you're producing these rings? Is that are you are you still building some furniture, you know, working on a house what what's that what's kind of the timeline look like for your traditional craft and and how did you start to get interested in in muzzle loading um for me it's muzzle loading for me it's simply about being fascinated with our past uh i've always been fascinated with our past um whether that be bronze age something or whether that be yeah muzzle loading in the 1800s um so i've always been just fascinated with the past and how things were done and how things um, relate to each other and how do I can I can learn from them, um, figure out how things were built. Um, as a as a craftsman, I I meet, I just work out of my garage, so I have a, a garage. I have a little workshop set up in, um, and at the moment that's that's been working for me. Um, going forward, I'm not exactly sure what we're going to be doing. We would like to move here in the nearish future. So we're, we're, we're in a town home right now. And that's, it's, it's kind of a struggle for me because I grew up in smaller towns, just being able to disappear to the mountains and having you know wide open spaces and yards and things like that. And a lot of the projects I'm involved in, I mean, I, I still tan hides and whatever in, in our back patio, which is essentially what our backyard is in a town home. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, we're, we're looking to move, and at that point, it's kind of up in there. It'll depend on where we move and 
and what the area looks like and whatever. But for me, a lot of the craft going forward or a lot of the traditional skills going forward, um, I think this summer I'm not necessarily going to be focused on a learning a new craft per se, but a skill. Um, I've kind of dabbled in foraging my entire life. And last summer I got into it a little more heavily. Um, but just seeking that connection a little, a little more with my food. And, um, I guess I'm a person that craves simplicity. I've always, I I like seeing the direct result of, you know, I'm, my hands are cold. I make a pair of mittens. Um, I'm hungry. I go, pick up some food or whatever from the garden. Um, so for me, that's, that's kind of where I'm at is I, I like the simplicity of providing for myself. So, um, I'm going to be focusing a lot on foraging this year and, uh, I, I got my degrees. I got a, I got a degree in wildlife biology and then one in rangeland resources. So I already know a lot of the plants around here. Um, it's just then pairing it with learning, more of what's edible and how to prepare them so they taste good. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's probably going to be going forward. One of my big, one of my big things I'm focused on, on, on learning. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. And that's, it's very much tied in with very connected to traditional craft and in American history. Cause that's, when you think about it, it's not too far away, you know, in the timeline from where we're at now. Oh, yeah, when everyone was, yeah, you're paying attention to what food was available. And uh, I, I, like I said, I'm I'm out west, so I relate more to the stuff out west. But, yeah, you had pioneers moving in and, yeah, you you learned to dig camas bulbs or something like that because that's what the natives did in the area. And that's a massive food resource that um, honestly tastes great. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just one we've kind of forgotten about these days. But the uh, yeah, a hundred years ago, that was a major, major, very important part of living, just yeah. living in general. So we um, joke that when we go on the road to go cover a show or um, even set up at our home range, that we have so much stuff, you know. And when I load up the car with all the all the equipment, you know, it's it's just kind of crazy to think that people were going out, you know, with what they could carry and living for months on end, you know, just trekking and long hunting and and trapping. And it's kind of bizarre to think about now. I mean, before I go anywhere, you know, I've got a bag full of stuff, you know, that I, you know, you might never need, but it's the stuff I want to have with me. And the just in case. Yeah. It's the just in case stuff. And, and, you know, not 150 years ago, that was, you know, people just found what they needed where they were at. Or you just did without. Yeah. Or just did without. Yeah. You didn't need so much. That's kind of an interesting, uh, conversation i i had a similar one with my dad not long ago i was reading a book and they were talking about um you know blanket rolls and uh just rolling up in one blanket out into the fire and whatever and i was talking with my dad about uh i kind of wonder what the difference is have we just become so used to being comfortable all the time that we can't do that or is if we'd like lost some is there some like secret art and skill to uh staying warm rolled up in one tin blanket next to the fire because i don't think i would sleep very well for very long doing that (laughs) right yeah (laughs) and i I don't know if it's just we've gotten so used to being comfortable or if that's like a a a missing link somewhere in our knowledge between there and now where we've just forgotten 
how things need to be done in order to make it a little more functional. Yeah, that was something interesting talking with Eli Froge and Jason Jacobs in our, uh, in our, I think it was our second episode, but they, we talked about that somewhere. It's going out and doing what they're doing, which is kind of historically accurate trekking, is they're going out with equipment and gear and food that, you know, of a certain time period and they're going out and surviving and, and they'll do like winter squirrel hunts where they'll go out in the woods and winter camp and set up and do things. But they yeah. kind of described it as being intentionally uncomfortable, you know, is, is going out and trying to do what our forefathers did. And I think that was a really interesting point there that kind of goes along with what you're saying is, is it something that, you know, they just did and it was, it was just what they did and it wasn't about being comfortable. It's just all they could do. You know, they only had one life. blanket. Yeah, it was just life. And now we get in our air-conditioned house, we go to our air-conditioned car to go to an air-conditioned store and, you know, eat ready-served food. And, you know, it's, it's just a difference in life, maybe. But it's something that's interesting that, you know, people think that we're, everybody's ignoring or forgetting about that history. But I think there's a lot of people still going out and trying to find it. I, uh, I actually followed his... Uh... I follow him as well online, and I loved seeing his his pictures of yes. his uh, like dugout journey when he was out on his dugout canoe and whatever. I follow one other guy who does dugout stuff as well. He just floated the Mississippi River. Um, he started in Montana, went down the Missouri, and then down the Mississippi. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, it was it was great fun seeing the pictures and whatnot. But um, yeah, it's I think too that's kind of what drew me to. Uh, survival and the wilderness survival type stuff growing up um similar sort of thing it's not that you're you're not like life-threateningly uncomfortable but yeah you go out and you build a shelter and you stay in it for a night or two and you can make yourself comfortable more comfortable but a lot of times you're just dealing with low levels of uh uncomfortableness because it's not what you're used to yeah and I don't think it would be a problem if you were used to it, if that was your day-to-day -day sleeping arrangement. But the simple fact that we're used to soft mattresses and whatever, it just, you're just dealing with low levels of uncomfortability when you, when you start some of these things. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, what's interesting for us seeing, um, I'm sure you, you see the same thing, but the bushcraft community is doing that but in kind of a modern sense you know they're using yeah. modern equipment and modern tools but we're seeing a lot of those people get interested in muzzle loading because you know they're, they're not necessarily interested in firearms but it's another not easy thing it's something that yeah. that takes some knowledge and takes some research and takes some tinkering because it, that's the fun thing about a muzzle loader is yeah, yeah you can really tune something in but it's not put a magazine and go 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 you know, it's which has always been kind of what dissuaded me from modern rifles. It just seems too simple. Yeah, and I don't have I, to learn anything. Yeah, <laughs> and I would argue, which I know, I know is probably simplifying it down for those folks who shoot modern rifles. Right. But from an outsider perspective, yeah, I would argue that if you you know if you get into muzzleloading and start researching and start understanding, it's a lot simpler than modern firearms because you can take a couple bolts out, you know, open up your lock and tune the spring, tune your triggers, you know, file a little thing down here and there and put it all back together with a couple tools. 
and that's the other part that that would be uh, another big draw for me into muzzle loading is I like being able to work on my stuff or with my stuff. Yes, um, I like being able to make my own. Well, that's that's why I I use longbows. I mean, I grew up with recurves, and that was part of what got me into it. But that's why I got into making my own longbows and uh, doing a little bit of hunting with my bows and whatnot is because I like being in control and knowing that I can make my weapon, I can fix my weapon if anything goes wrong. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I know what I'm doing and what's, what's going on with it and how I can alter it if I want to, or anything like that. And so a muzzle loader to me, it's, it's not to the point where I feel intimidated by it. I mean, I could open it up and I could logically look at it and be like, okay, so this does this, which then causes that to do that. And I could, logically figure it out if i needed to yeah um which is kind of it's kind of like vehicles i mean if i look at a 1970s vehicle there is so much less in it and you can logically go through and be like well okay this part seems to be working all right and that part seems to be working all right you get into modern vehicles and it's kind of the same way you, you look at it and it's like a modern iphone you're like well i don't know it's just there's too much going on in there and there's electronics all of a sudden controlling things and yeah so for me, yeah, I, I would love to get into muzzle loading, uh, and I've, like I said, I've been fascinated by it for years, but I've never taken the plunge. So, well, I recommend at some point to, I need to to anybody, and especially for somebody like yourself, you know, if you're interested in building one, you know, like um, there are several kits available, you know, to kind of get started. But boy, after you put together a kit. You're gonna to want to start. It's gonna be addicting. Yeah, you're. Yeah, there's never, <laughs> there's never just one. I don't think. And, uh, and that's where even talking yeah. to the guys that are shooting modern muzzleloaders now, there's a lot of people building, you know, precision long range, you know, out to 800 yards muzzleloaders that are um, very modern looking. I mean, the the thing that's really popular right now is using a a black or a 209 primer, shotgun primer, or a large rifle primer as your percussion cap like you would you know on a percussion rifle or a musket and it's in a inside of a bolt action assembly and people look at it and think that it's a a modern rifle but the guts are all muzzleloader the only difference is is just that that the difference in the primer and the action and even those guys got started on the traditional side of things. And that's how they got into it because they'd like to be able to open something up, be able to investigate and be able to tinker on it. And I think then, it's one of those things too. Once you learn the simple you know, or the basics, the understanding, then you can progress on to some of the more uh, difficult or technologically different aspects too. Yes. You can start to kind of advance it. And then you, you find yourself going up through time advancing you know into the black powder cartridge and then you kind of get into the modern era where you even go back to the muzzle loading aspect and and try to figure out how to make a 200 year old ignition technology shoot super far and we've got yeah. targets like the the creedmoor event it was a kind of a an international event we have it was held here for a few years and then held in england and they still shoot those matches in england and i mean i just was looking online today about a modern Creedmoor match that was still shooting traditional muzzleloaders, but they're shooting out to 1,200 yards. Holy smokes. With a muzzleloader, and you just think, that's crazy, you know, but they're doing it, and it's it's, it's awesome. <laughs> that is, that's that's super cool. I, I assume that's still open sights and everything? Yes, I believe so. I mean, I think they have um, kind of peep sights set up on them. Yeah, but I, I don't know okay. that how... And 
there are all different kinds of classifications. I mean, there's a lot of muzzleloading matches and things that are set up with scopes, especially for those long distances. But uh, you know, you always have your your kind of modern class and then your traditional class where you're still using what they used. And we have because history is cool. We have you know evidence and we have those original targets from the late 1800s and there are guys still now looking at those original targets saying how did they do that and trying to replicate it sometimes with the same guns because you were in that era where you had semi-mass production set up yeah and it's it's cool i love geeking out about it history yep it's fascinating you can always learn something from it yeah you just got to take the time and, and go out and look for it. And th- that's what's neat about, um, you know, kind of what we're doing in the magazine, but also in the new media and, and what you're doing, going out and talking to these people is you, we talked about kind of history getting lost. And this is something I'm sure our listeners have, have heard before, but I, I talk about that you've got a moment in time now where you don't have to keep losing that information. You know, it's so easy to catalog and it's so easy and affordable to save that information and save those interviews like never yeah. before, where you can go back and and listen to those people talk and see them and how they act and how they moved around. I mean, when I put a camera on some of our uh, some of our members and some of our people, they get they get real camera shy. But I try to bring out just who they are and how they interact, because that's the kind of stuff that, you know, in 50 years or in a hundred years, you're going to be able to look back and relate to that person because you see them as a real person. It's, it's so easy to kind of get locked into that. You know, this is being recorded, this is being videoed. And then everybody kind of turns into a middle school um, educational videotape and they, they (laughs) they lose their personality a little bit, but, but it's that kind Uh of stuff that is important to capture because then you kind of, you can relate to people. That's why people love, old photographs, you know, from the late 1800s where people are smiling or laughing because so many of the times you see them as just stern, serious faces. And oh yeah, unconsciously that influences how we perceive those people. But they were, they were people just like you and me. Everyone sees these you know, stern pictures. No one's smiling. Everyone's like glaring at the camera. Like, geez, life was harsh. Life was miserable. Yeah. But that was just, they didn't know any of their life. Doing and- yeah. No, I understand though with the, the, I I haven't tried doing videos and I'm sure it's even worse when it comes to video, but sometimes when you chat with people and you're trying to record, it's like, you got to take a minute to chat with them before you start the recording in order to kind of get everyone loosened up and, and yeah. Get it kind of back into a natural state. Yeah. Yeah. Where you can kind of forget about the equipment. I mean, I'm 26, so I've kind of grown up with with all of this stuff and, and pretty much have grown up with the internet, you know, so to me it's, it's kind of second nature, but you know, I'm, I'm interviewing, you know, people in their late eighties, early nineties and trying to preserve that history. And, and they see it as a TV personality. That's, that's who's worthy of being recorded, you know, somebody that's on TV and trying to convince them that, you know, they're important too is, is always kind of the challenge. And by and large, they have the more fascinating stories anyways. I uh, I had a Sunday school teacher growing up. I think she was like 96 or something like that. And she would tell us stories all the time of uh, growing up before electricity and before cars and things like that. And you just, 
I mean, as a seven or eight year old kid or whatever it was, I mean, that doesn't really hit home. But looking back on it now, I'm like, holy smokes, I would love to chat with her yeah, more and really learn a little more about that time period and whatever, but kind of miss that opportunity. That's long past now, but yeah, you don't yeah, realize it. older generation. I mean, there's a ton of, ton of history and ton of just things you can learn about life and the way it was lived back then. Yeah. Talking to these people. And now we're seeing a, a, a huge interest in the early 1920s in the cars, in the camping, because that was a period where we started to go camping and yeah. started to kind of try to reconnect with something at that time that their grandparents did just as day-to-day life. And, you know, where those people are, you know, now pretty much gone. But, you know, you get, you're looking at a time period now where, you know, the 30s and 40s are starting to slip. And if we can work to preserve that, I mean, and you're thinking about it in 100 years from now, how great it would be to have that resource of the 1930s and 40s. I mean, we would kill to have that kind of resource for the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1600s, all going yeah. back. Because you wouldn't, I mean, don't get me wrong, the the quest of trying to figure out how or why they did something the way they did is part of the fun. And I, I'm not using this as an excuse to take that away. But having <laughs> that having that reference yeah. would be wonderful. Well, no matter what you record, you're still going to have uh, something else that needs figured out. I yeah. mean, you'll record someone talking about X, Y, or Z, and that'll lead you to, well, uh yeah, I, I learned about that part, but that just opened up a whole different question in my mind because I had never considered, you know, this. Yeah. And that's a, a secondary part of what they were talking about, and they never really covered it. So it'll it'll open up whole new things in order to even think about. Tell, tell us a little bit about your show. And you, you talked a little bit about interviewing craftspeople and how it's changed from uh, like kind of a how-to to, to trying to get more of the story, but... How did you get started doing the show and, uh, you know, kind of where is it at now? And, and just, I guess, tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I got started in the show last fall. Um, it's something that honestly I've been, I wanted to get into more of the educational, um, teaching people things for years, some of these traditional skills and traditional craft. Um, but I've never, never taken the plunge. Um, it's been a passion of mine, basically my entire life, but the last couple of years, I've really wanted to get into the more of the teaching side of things. And, um, then I, when I went self-employed, when I left the woodshop I was working at, I started listening to podcasts. Uh, I had never listened to a podcast before that. And, um, I loved the format. I loved being able to listen to uh, stories, examples, educational stuff, what have you, while I was working. Because um, a lot of times working with your hands, yes, you do need to be focused. But once you know what you're doing, it doesn't require all of your focus. You can zone out a little um, bit. Yeah, you can zone out a little bit. You can listen to what's going on and, and you know what you're doing enough that you can just keep doing it and you may have to pause if, if you get to some critical part or whatever, but you can by and large listen to something in the background while you're, while you're working. Um, so I, I really grew to love podcasts and, um, decided that was the format I was going to try and pursue. So 
um, for me, it's been a, been a big learning curve. Um, I've never been big into the technology side of things. Um, cause the traditional skills and traditional craft were always my passion. And I kind of avoided technology. Yeah. So learning to start a podcast and trying to set up a website, whatever, it's been a, it's been a big learning curve. Um, but I've had a ton of fun doing it and, um, getting to chat with people and, um, talk about crafts and skills and whatnot. So, uh, we are, I, I kind of took a break over December. Um, I think we're 12 episodes in right now. Okay. So great. I have a couple others lined up, um, for the next little while, but yeah, we, so far we've covered things like willow weaving and bark tanning and, uh, tracking, you know, things like that. So, um, looking forward, yeah, just a lot of the old traditional skills is what we, I want to really cover, really focus on. Um, and that's, that's really anywhere from, like I said, I'm interested in prehistoric, you know, history, just learning how to do things, whether that be flint napping or, uh, whether that be processing flax to make, you know, linen cloth or something like that. I'm interested mm-hmm. in all of it. So, um, looking forward, yeah, it's really talking with people who have experimented and learned and know how to do things, um, and just having great conversations with them about it. That's awesome. No, that's something that I've actually learned. Um, well, I've been running things over the last couple of months too, is a, um, a lot of the people I want to chat to don't live in an area with a very good internet. And, yes. uh, B, yeah, they're kind of hesitant about technology and computers in general. I mean, so far I've talked with a lot of younger folks too, folks that are getting back into, um, the traditional skills and whatever, because I really view that as being something that's more on the rise than it used to be. Uh, I don't know if that's yeah. just my perception or if it really is, um, happening, but. Uh, I view a lot more people as trying to get back into the traditional skills, um, things like bushcraft and, uh, I don't know, spoon carving and foraging and, you know, things like that. There's, there's a couple big ones, blacksmithing, things like that. There's, there's a few big ones that people are always like the gateway into traditional skills, but I yeah. view a lot more people as coming back into it. And it's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's simply because you start, uh, seeing or viewing more things with the internet around these days, or if it's just that we crave a little bit more of a, a hands-on connection with the world around us now that everything has gone so digital and you don't really have that in your day-to-day living anymore. But. I think it's a, I think it's a good mixture of those, but also I think that the generation now that you're starting to see get interested in this stuff is they're at an age now where they have time and expendable income. Whereas, you know, a lot of people see, you know, kids as the future of things, but kids don't make decisions. They don't spend money. And I think that this is something that we talked about some this weekend with the people that we talked to at the Connor show is you're seeing a point now where all these people that, you know, may have been exposed to it when they were younger are now at a point where they can go out and do something and pursue that interest. And there's a lot of people that don't want to play video games all the time or go out to bars or, or party. And they're interested in going out and doing something they really connect with, with their hands. 
yeah, that's, that's my two cents on what we're seeing. Uh, that's that's probably a good good way of looking at it too. It's you, yeah. There are those people that are just going to sit around and play video games, but for those of us that doesn't appeal to, uh, we turn to something. And yeah, I'm glad it's glad it's working with our hands for a lot of folks. But yeah, I've seen a seen a major uptick in in that type of like I said the the big ones, blacksmithing, spoon carving, that type of thing. Um, and it's it's a big explosion too. I mean, you see it at start seeing things like the folk schools becoming pretty uh yes. popular and busy i mean their classes are booked out for a long ways uh, and you see a One bunch of, our... of people offering workshops on all sorts of different things and getting people to sign up i mean it's it's great seeing seeing some of the revival of it yeah one of our big uh, i guess educational programs that we put on is we partner with western kentucky university to put on a gunsmithing seminar and Ooh. it's 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 focused on muzzleloader building, accoutrement building, and all that kind, of, all of, everything that goes into making the stuff around muzzleloaders. Yeah, and it is, you know, by and large, by far the one of the most interesting things that we do, and it it really shows. I mean, there are people that come year after year and are interested in in continuing to finish and continuing to work on you know, those traditional crafts. And it's, it's really exciting. I think, I mean, it's really easy to get locked into the idea that, you know, it's dying and people aren't interested into in it. But, I, and I'm, I'm glad you listened to the first episode where we, we, we talked a lot about this, where it's not, it's not dying, it's evolving. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just changing and it's important to be on, to stay with it through the change, to make sure that this knowledge isn't lost because there's a lot of people that, you know, know a lot about all of this and we don't, we don't want to lose it through this shift. And that's, that's something I've had a hard time with too, is, uh, you get some people on and you're like, okay, you're a, I don't know, you, you have a particular craft you've developed. You're easy to talk to. I know exactly what I'm going to talk with you about. And then you get some people on and you're like, you are involved in so many things. I, I don't even know where to focus on or where to start with, or they're all cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, it's like, where do you go with it? It's, it's difficult sometimes, but I love seeing some of the educational stuff come out too. And it sounds like you guys have an event. Um, I don't know how some of your living history, uh, events and whatnot are you go to how much of that is an educational teach people how to do things. But I know a lot of the, uh, in the, like the primitive skills community, um, mm -hmm. primitive technology, you, they have, uh, what they call gatherings. There's a dozen or something across the country, uh, every year. Um, things like rabbit stick, winter count, the firefly gathering, uh, things like that, uh, between the rivers, um, where it's, I, I like, really like the format of them cause it's all, it's all about teaching, uh, skills or, yeah. um, knowledge. So you go in and it's yeah, $350 for a week or something like that to get into it. But then you have, it's basically a get together of instructors and you go around and they'll be like, today I'm teaching whatever. And they go around and everyone, you know, they create a schedule of what they're teaching, what days and whatnot. And then you just go around to whichever classes you feel like taking, whether that be felting or blacksmithing or uh, flint napping or, you know, whatever you just, hit the classes that you're interested in. And you can, you can learn a lot in those weeks um, or in that week or yeah. even, even in, if you just drop by for a day or two and 
whatever. You, you can really learn a lot. And I like that format where it's, it's not necessarily that you're signing up for a specific workshop, but that you just, you go and it's a get together of instructors and then you just pick which instructor you want to go learn from for that day. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's very similar to how our gunsmithing seminar is set up. It's, you have to, you have to pre-register for the classes that you'd like to take, but they're set up in, um, I think three, six and nine day courses. So depending on your schedule and what you're interested in, you know, there's, there's different kind of levels of depth, Yeah. but that's, this is really interesting because that's the that's the kind of thing that we could very easily, you know, start hosting on our grounds, and and it's something that's that's very interesting. I mean, we're a we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, and so the the education side of it is really important to us. I mean, we hold national matches and hold national and keep national records, you know, on the competitive shooting side, but the education is. Every, is, is what allows us to do what we do in, in hosting kind of the more exciting looking stuff, at least on the outside. Yeah. And that's really interesting. I'm going to have to bring that up. Yeah. If that's something you guys are interested in hosting, I mean, yeah, you could do something in a similar format and it would, I'm sure people would love it. I mean, just the opportunity to get together and learn from craftsmen and people that really know what they're talking about. Um, yeah. It's, it's a great opportunity. And I think, as always, we have a special offer for anybody listening to the podcast. If you're not an NMLRA member, you can use the code PODCAST10 at nmlra.org and get a discount. Get a 10% off your NMLRA membership for one year. That's if you're looking at the digital magazine or if you're looking at the physical magazine. It should work for both. Uh, we can't do this show without the members of the NMLRA. And, and just like with Muzzle Blast Magazine, we're just continuing that here with the podcast, trying to bring you more as we're trying to bring you as much as we can about muzzleloading traditional craft and living history. And, you know, your membership helps us do that. So thank you. We've got a busy month ahead here. I'm looking at the calendar and we're at the end of February. So the first weekend of March, we'll be going out to the 24th annual honorable company of Horner's horn fair and covering that event with some film and, and hopefully some interviews here as we get things arranged. And then um, towards the end of March, we'll, have the, we'll be at the Kalamazoo Living History Show, interviewing several of the craftsmen and vendors there about muzzleloading living history. And we've got a couple of the military groups on the line, so it's, it's going to be interesting to hear about them because they're definitely kind of blurring the line more from the competitive muzzleloading and living history side of things. So I'm excited to talk to those guys. And then the weekend after that, we've got we're working double duty. We'll be going down to the York shoot in Tennessee, where it's kind of a traditional slug or, uh, I mean, pardon. The York is a traditional chunk gun match. So it's one of those kind of weird sects of muzzleloading that we're excited to, to show the public some that hasn't been publicized very much. And then we'll be going to, that same weekend, we'll be going to the Creedmoor 150, which is um, partially, is, is hosted by the NMLRA. So we're excited to to get down there and and film those guys shooting their Creedmoors, their Sharps, and some Whitworths out to a thousand yards. As always, check out nmlra.org for up-to-date information. We've published a lot of interesting and neat updates on the blog, and be sure to follow us on Facebook at nmlra and on Instagram as Muzzle Blasts to keep up to date. Thank you.